Let's pray together. Our Father, we come this morning, Lord, because you have drawn us by the power of your Spirit. And we sing to you because you have revealed yourself to be the one true and living God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Lord, in the scriptures, we read of the way that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, and also of the way that he was made lower than the angels. And Lord, we are confronted with this reality that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and suffered. Lord, we pray that you would amaze us with the mystery of the incarnation. We pray that you would cause our hearts to be stunned at the glory of what you have accomplished. We pray also, Lord, that you would stir up our minds and make us those who, who recognize that what we think about you is the most important thing about us. What we think about the Lord Jesus is the most important set of thoughts we can conceive. Lord, impress upon us the importance of who Christ is and what he has done. And then, Lord, we pray that you would help us to speak truly about the Lord Jesus and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray that you would keep us from idolatry, keep us from wrong conceptions of who you are, of, of who Christ is, and of how you have accomplished salvation. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be those who genuinely know the Lord Jesus, who understand that in him you are leading many sons to glory. And then, Lord, help us to embrace your fatherly care as you treat us as sons, disciplining those you love. Lord, we commit all these things to you and pray for your help. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us the truth. We pray that you would keep us from error. And we pray that you would cause the truth to bear fruit in our lives. Cause us to be ready to, to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. So we commit ourselves to you, praying for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. G.K. Chesterton writes in his book, Orthodoxy, he says, this is the thrilling romance of orthodoxy. People have fallen into a foolish habit of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy, humdrum, and safe. There never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. It was sanity. And to be sane is more dramatic than to be mad. It was the equilibrium of a man behind madly rushing horses 
seeming to stoop this way and to sway that, yet in every attitude having the grace of statuary and the accuracy of arithmetic. The church in its early days went fierce and fast with any war horse, yet it is utterly unhistoric to say that she merely went mad along one idea like a vulgar fanaticism. She swerved to left and right so exactly as to avoid enormous obstacles. She left on the one hand the huge bulk of Arianism, buttressed by all the worldly powers to make Christianity too worldly. The next instant, she was swerving to avoid an Orientalism, which would have made it too unworldly. The Orthodox Church never took the tame course or accepted the conventions. The Orthodox Church was never respectable. It would have been easier to have accepted the earthly power of the Arians. And then uh, Chesterton's a Roman Catholic, so I'm going to pass over a slander that he makes on, on Calvinism and skip to the next line. It is easy, he writes, to be a madman. It is easy to be a heretic. It is always easy to let the age have its head. The difficult thing is to keep one's own. It is always to be easy to be a modernist, as it is easy to be a snob. To have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration, which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christendom, that would indeed have been simple. It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls, only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any one of those fads, from Gnosticism to Christian science, would indeed have been obvious and tame. But to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. So that's a long quotation, uh, but I wanted to read it because of the way that today we're going to think together about what the book of Hebrews tells us about the Lord Jesus. And the book of Hebrews has us, like people in a chariot, reeling through these truths. And what we have to do is hang on for dear life and maintain the one angle at which we stand. So I would, I would invite you, I would urge you to open a copy of the scriptures. If you, don't ha if you didn't bring one, there's one in the pew rack uh, in front of you or behind you. Open a copy of the scriptures to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to be looking in particular, starting at verse 9, the passage that J.O. read earlier. But in some ways, I, I'm going to reach all the way back to the beginning of this book and, and work through some things that we've seen from chapter 1, verse 1, continu continuing through the end of chapter 2. Um, this week, I am, I'm going to try to keep myself from uh, getting too much into the quotations of the Old Testament here in this passage, so we will probably re re return to Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, uh, when I'm next in the pulpit, and, um, and consider how the author of Hebrews is quoting um, uh, both Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8. So the question that we're dealing with today really arises from what we read in Hebrews 2.9 when the author of Hebrews says we see him talking about the Lord Jesus who for a little while 
was made lower than the angels. Okay, so he's, he's talking about the Lord Jesus, and he says, for a little while, the Lord Jesus was made lower than the angels. That's one statement. And another statement in, in chapter 1, verse 12, when, when, he's, when he quotes Psalm 102, spoken to the Lord Jesus, and at the end of verse 12, it says, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And, and that picks up Hebrews 13, verse 8, which if, if you don't have... Hebrews 13, verse 8, memorized. I would encourage you to write down that reference and commit this verse to memory. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the question for this sermon is, how do we hold together? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or Hebrews 1.12, you are the same. And 2.9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. How do those two ideas square with one another? The same yesterday and today and forever, made lower. Okay, that's not the same, right? It's not the same if you're made lower than the angels for a little while. And so we're confronted by the text of Hebrews with these questions that, that, that have to be resolved. Uh, in, in, in one way, it's almost like we're dealing with a block of ice that spontaneously bursts into flame. You know, that's impossible. That can't happen, right? But that doesn't really do what we're dealing with justice because what we're dealing with is in Hebrews chapter 1, if you, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 7, it says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And I think what the author of Hebrews has in mind as we, as we talked last week, in part, is the way that one of those angels showed up in the burning bush. And it's almost as though he's saying, when the Lord sends these messengers, he can change the constitution of who they are because they're changeable. But on the other hand, the Lord Jesus is the same, right? 112, you are the same. So how do we hold together these realities? The author has contrasted the unchangeable character of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1 with the changeable character of angels. And now he's saying, Jesus changes. So there, there are two big ideas that, that we have to lock on to as we consider these things. Um, the first is that the Son, chapter 1, verse 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is God. And, and we're going to look at these statements and we will see that the Son is clearly God. Everything that can, can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. Everything that is true about God is true of Christ. He is fully and completely God. And then the other truth, the Son became man. Those two things are what we're holding together. And I want us to, to look at the text of Hebrews and see what these texts say and feel the tension that they create. And then... Uh, hopefully have that tension resolved by the orthodox confession of faith that, that the church has succeeded in maintaining. We don't want to fall at any one of these angles that you become a heretic. Um, if, you, if you think wrongly of God and Christ, you are not a worshiper of God and Christ. 
Your, your worship being directed to God in an acceptable, acceptable way depends upon you thinking rightly of who God is and who Christ is. If we don't get this right, we're not Christian. So, so our lives depend upon understanding these truths. And, and I want to suggest to you here as we begin that there are two questions that will keep you orthodox. There are two questions that will keep you sane. Uh, question number one, what did the son have to be in order to satisfy the father's justice? And I think the, the clear and uh, lasting answer to that question is he had to be God. And number two, what did the son have to be in order to accomplish our salvation? And the answer to that question is he had to be what we are, everything that we are. So um, as we approach this passage that we're looking at this morning, um, I, I, would, I would remind you again of, of what I think the, the burden that the author of Hebrews feels is. And, and that burden, I think you can, we can summarize the author's burden also in a question that goes like this. Why should I persevere through the persecution and temptation that I face in this life in order to continue as a Christian? Why should I persevere through the persecution? You know, if, if, if the world in, in the author of Hebrews' day is saying to his audience what the world is saying to us today, and I think it was, it, it goes like this. Why do you believe these crazy things? Why do you hold to these, these outlandish ideas? Why don't you just go along with the program? Why don't you just affirm what everybody agrees is, is right? Why do you hold on to these ideas that make us look at you and say, you're hateful, you're harmful, you're bigoted, and, and, and on and on it goes. So why should we perse persevere through the persecution and then the temptation? You know, Christianity says, um, without, holy, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So, so what motivates us to continue to put to death the flesh, to resist temptation, not to just say, I'm going to go with my desires. I'm going to go with all, all that my flesh tells me I should indulge in. Okay, so the author, I think, is trying to answer these questions. Why should you persevere through persecution and temptation to be a Christian? And just to review his, his argument to this point, in 1, 1 to 4, his big idea is, because God has spoken in the Son. So you should, you should persevere with Christ, not go back to the synagogue, not revert to Judaism, because whereas in the past God spoke through angels to the prophets, now God has sent his Son and revealed him. So God has spoken in the Son. And then 1, 5 through 14, I think the big idea there is, look at how the Son exceeds the angels through whom the Old Covenant was revealed. And then 2, 1 through 4, so therefore, because, of, because God has spoken in the Son, because of who the Son is, we must pay attention to 1, we must pay much closer attention to 3, how shall we escape? Really, there is no escape. And then we saw last week, 2, 5 through 9, all are subjected to the Son. So we should pay attention, we should persevere in faith, because everything is subject, subjected to Him. And then as we come to 2.9, really 2.10 through 18, he adds to the argument by saying that the Son became man 
and suffered to deliver us. So that's the big idea of 2, 10 through 18. You should persevere as a Christian through, through persecution and temptation because the Son became man. God has spoken in the Son, who is greater than angels. You should pay much closer attention because there's no escape. Everything is subjected to him, and he became man to accomplish your deliverance. So look with me. Uh, let, let's, let's start by asking, um, how can the author of Hebrews say that, that the Son is God unchanging and also speak of the Son becoming? And, and what I mean is the way that, for instance, he says in, in 2.18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able. So he's, he's suffered, he's been tempted, and then 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So let's, let's begin to think about these, these uh, conflicting statements. And, and the first thing that I want to try to get before us is a clear idea, again, of the divine nature of the Son. So I want to take you back to chapter 1, verse 3. And, and there we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Okay, so He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is these things. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't remark on this when we were in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, but this idea of Christ being the radiance of the glory of God is why the Nicene Creed, for instance, which we have confessed and, Lord willing, will return to, it's why it speaks of Jesus as the one begotten from the Father before all the ages, light of light. So what this is communicating in Hebrews 1, 3 he is the radiance of the glory of God. You have God's own essential glory. And Christ himself is that radiance. And, and you can hear in that the light emanating from light. God the Father is the light. God the Son is emanating out, light from light. And this is communicating this, this, this truth that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. There never has been a time when the Son was not begotten of the Father. It has always been the case, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as God, he, he derives what he is from God, and he is everything God is. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And then when it says the exact imprint of his nature, um, I, I mentioned when we looked at that, that the language here is language used of an impress on a clay seal. And, and this too communicates what Jesus is because it's like what the seal is, is reflected once the impress has been made. So he is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is these things. Uh, also, notice how there in, in verse 3, it says he upholds the universe. That is a present tense statement. It's an ongoing thing. Christ is always upholding the universe. And 
right before that at the end of verse 2, he is the one through whom God the Father created the world. So he is light from light. He is the impress from the mold. He is the creator and sustainer. And he is the eternal sovereign. Look at verse 12. Your throne, O God, spoken to the Son. I'm sorry, did I say verse 12? I meant verse 8. I meant verse 8 if I said verse 12. Sorry about that. 1-8. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. The throne communicates God's sovereign authority. And Jesus is on a, an eternal throne. He is the everlasting eternal sovereign and as 112 says you are the same he is unchanging now just to draw out um, a couple of implications of of these truths that we see in the text of hebrews uh, one theologian stephen Duby, writes god is neither fulfilled nor harmed by his creatures this is what it means for God to be God. He is not fulfilled, but he has no lack within himself. He has no emotional need that, that he somehow needs us to fulfill for him. He, he, God is not fulfilled nor harmed by his creatures. This is really what Paul is getting at in Romans 11 when he, when he asks those questions, for instance, who has ever given him a gift that he should be repaid? No one adds to God. No one brings fulfillment to God, and no one harms God. And maybe you can feel the tension if I'm affirming that Christ is God, who cannot be harmed by his creatures. Well, how then can we speak of him suffering and dying? How do, how do we hold these things together? Um, Doobie also writes, God, in his incorruptible goodness is not subject to harm or deprivation. God is not subject to harm. Okay, just to put the juxtaposition on you, Christ was crucified, right? Christ was subject to harm, but God is not subject to harm or deprivation. Jesus said, I thirst, right? He was weary in John 4, but God is not subject to harm or deprivation. How is it that we hold these things together. Well, as we approach uh, con continued uh, uh, interaction with that question, let me just say again, everything true of God is true of Christ, but, but now we're going to be confronted with this reality that Christ, who is and always has been God, has become man. So look with me again at chapter 2, verse 9, Hebrews 2, 9, where the author says, we see him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. This is speaking of the incarnation. It is speaking of Christ's birth by the Virgin Mary. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now, this is, this is remarkable because the author is saying that the everlasting Christ because of his suffering and death, is now crowned with glory and honor. He, he's indicating that he has something now that he didn't have before, and yet he's talking about God, who cannot be added to. He, he cannot lack anything. We are, we are up against the mystery 
of the triune God and the incarnation of the Son of God. But if, if, you'll, if you'll think about these things, this mystery is really everywhere in the New Testament. For instance, think of the way that at the temptation of the Lord Jesus, Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world. And, and, he, and he, you know, he takes him up on the mount, high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, you fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of this that belongs to me. Right? So there at the temptation, all that lies in Satan's power. After Christ has completed his, his faithful, righteous life, been crucified and risen from the dead, now he stands before his disciples and you remember what he says. Now he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Apparently that wasn't his before. But because of what he accomplished, it's now been given to him. So you can see this, this progression that comes about as a result of the incarnation, as a result of, as the author of Hebrews puts it here in verse 10, he says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. These are stunning statements because he's, telling, he's told us in chapter 1, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his character. That cannot be perfected. And now he's telling us that Christ was made perfect through suffering. In order to deal with these things, we have to make recourse to what the author says. We have to hold what the author says together, and then we have to recognize that the author seems to be speaking of the, the two natures of Christ, the, the divine nature and then the human nature. And, and, and we, what we want to do is we want to learn from the biblical authors how to talk about the Lord Jesus. And this biblical author is talking about the Lord Jesus in such a way that he can affirm with respect to his divine nature that he's everything that the Father is. He, he, he derives what he is from the Father and then he reflects the Father's very own glory as God. Three persons in the Godhead, one divine nature. That's your, that's your key phrase on the Trinity. And then with Christ, we have one person of Christ who has two natures, a human and a divine. And uh, I, should, I should pause here for a moment and say, we should always respond to these truths with worship. We, we don't want to, to just try to think about it all the time and never enjoy God's revelation of himself to us. We want to be delighted with God's revelation of himself and intrigued and stimulated and intellectually extended and strengthened as we contemplate what God has revealed of himself. Now, let me, let me draw you back to verse 9 here where it says that he was made lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And then it says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death, which again, uh, how do we deal with this? He upholds all things by the word of his power, ongoing, forever, and he tastes death. I think we have to say, with uh, the faithful who have gone before us, that his divine nature did not die. His 
in his human nature, this is spoken not with respect to the divine nature, but it's spoken with respect to his human nature. I don't know how to put this together. I don't have all these answers, but God himself, as God, does not die. Christ, the one person of Christ, does die, and yet he is life. And, and I think that this is why Luke in, in Acts presents the apostle Peter speaking of how death has no power to hold him. Later in this book, the author of Hebrews will speak of the power of Christ's indestructible life. And then the author of Hebrews says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And if we consider what that word everyone means, we, ju we should just keep reading. Uh, we should, for instance, in verse 10, notice that he's bringing many sons to glory. And then uh, in verse 11, he's speaking of those who are sanctified. So these sons who are being brought to glory... And in verse 11, those who are sanctified, I think these are the, 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 the everyone for whom Christ has tasted death. At least they're the ones for whom the death counts. So uh, how, how did God accomplish this, this salvation? Verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things in, exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author of Hebrews is saying that it was fitting for God the Father to send Christ as a man and for him to be perfected through what he endured, through what he suffered. Uh, now, I think what the author is stressing here in this passage is the solidarity between Christ and Christ's people. So he says in verse 11, for he who sanctifies, this would be the Lord Jesus, and those who are sanctified, this would be the, the sons in verse 10, who are being brought to glory. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now there's a lot of discussion about what this one source is. I think there are two most likely possibilities of the one source of he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Um, because of the, the stress on so, the solidarity between Christ and his people in the passage, I think the most likely explanation is Adam. Christ descends from Adam according to the flesh, and the, the line of descent is traced in the genealogy in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 and the end of the book of Ruth and the beginning of Matthew and, and in Luke 3. He descends from Adam according to the flesh. Um, another possibility, however, and, and it could be that the author may have wanted his audience to conceive of both of these things. Another possibility is that the one source is God. And in the same way that, that Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, those who believe are, in a sense, begotten or born again. And, and John seems to speak this way in 1 John chapter 4 when he speaks of, of how, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's uh, chapter 5, and he says in verse 18, 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. So he's speaking of the way that those who are born again, they, they pursue holiness. And he who was born of God, Jesus, 
protects his people, and the evil one does not touch him. So uh, it could be that, that the author of Hebrews is thinking that way, perhaps because of the stress on the, the, the solidarity between Christ and his people, uh, the focus is more on the, the, the fact that Christ descends from Adam and everyone else descends from Adam. And for this reason, he now quotes these passages from the Old Testament, which Lord willing, we'll look at next week, uh, or not next week, but the week after. Um, here, I just want to say, um, passages from the Old Testament are being quoted to show that Christ is identifying with his people. And then passing right over those to verse 14, look at verse 14, since therefore the children, and these children, uh, they've been mentioned in verse 12, behold, I and the children God has given me, and these are the brothers um, from, from verse 12. Sorry, the children is verse 13. The brothers are in verse 12. And then these are the sons in verse 10, bringing many sons to glory. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So because of the nature of those who were to be redeemed, Christ shared in flesh and blood. Christ became what we are, and he did this, verse 14 continues, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I think the author has in, in view the way here that the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, bringing death and sin into the world, and then thereby having authority over the world, and Christ destroys the devil by means of his death and resurrection. Um, as, we, as we think about these things, um, again, uh, I want to make some affirmations about Christ taking on flesh. And the first thing I want to do is quote Bobby Jameson, who, who observes of the Lord Jesus Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So remaining what he was, God, he became what he was not, man. And then um, uh, Cyril of Alexandria um, writes of Hebrews 2.9, of the way that, that he tasted death for everyone. He says, he did, by God's grace, taste death for everyone in flesh, able to experience it without ceasing personally to be life. He tasted death without ceasing to be life. And Augustine similarly writes concerning this, uh, the, same, the same idea. He says, when then, in order to be mediator, he willed to take the form of a servant below the angels, he remained in the form of God above the angels. So Augustine is, is dealing with the way that as God, Christ did not become lower, but as man, he did become lower. And he's putting those two realities together. And then he continues. He says, being simultaneously the way of life on earth and life itself in heaven. And, and he's, he's holding together John 1, in him was life. And Jesus saying later in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was himself life on earth and life in heaven. And then even as he died, 
he had the power of an indestructible life. Um, let, me, let me conclude this morning. We'll, we'll come back to this passage and think more about what's going on in this passage. But let me conclude with, with six, um, five questions and one exclamation. And I really, I really um, am modifying um, these from this book by Bobby Jameson, The Paradox of Sonship, which if you would like to read more on Christ in Hebrews, I would commend to you. Uh, the, the five questions are who, what, when, how, and why. Who are we dealing with here as we think about these things? We're dealing with one person, the Lord Jesus. One single divine uh, subject. That's who we're dealing with. One person of the Lord Jesus. What are we dealing with? Well, we're dealing with one person who has two natures, a divine and a human nature. When... When are these things taking place? And, and we have to, this is, this is remarkable. This was in the songs that we sang. I don't, I don't know if you notice these things come out in the songs. One of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm talking about these things is because I think if you will note these, these realities, you'll begin to see them in our hymns, and you'll see them on the pages of Scripture. We have this affirmation that he's eternal. He, he is always the same yesterday and today and forever. And... In the last days, he comes. It's a, it's a both end that's really remarkable. It'll, it will stretch your thinking. If you clarify the two, that, that the one is above and beyond time, and the other actually enters into time. Who, one person, what, one person with two natures, when, eternity, and the last days, how. And, and here what I have in mind when I say how is, how is the Bible speaking of the Lord Jesus, particularly here in Hebrews. And I would suggest there's, there are two ways, at least, two main ways. One way is the author of Hebrews is speaking of Jesus as God. He's speaking of, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his character. The second way, he's, he's speaking of Christ on mission, we might say, meaning uh, he, he comes and he does these things, and he, he accomplishes his perf- purpose, and he suffers, and he dies. So as God and on mission, and then if we ask why, why would the Bible talk this way of the Lord Jesus, I, I think we, we have to answer, because as God and man, we have to say, this part pertains to his deity, and this part pertains to his humanity. As we've done with, for instance, his suffering and dying pertaining to his humanity and his being the exact imprint of God's character pertaining to his deity. So why persevere? Why persevere? Because of who Christ is. Because God himself came in the flesh and has revealed the truth in the last days and He is greater than the angels, and there's no escape if you don't pay close attention, and everything is subjected to him, and he is the one who took on flesh for our redemption. This is why we persevere through persecution and temptation. Now, I've said in in previous sermons that I think there's a kind of balancing of the beginning and the end and then the intervening parts of this epistle. And so I, I think that you know, here in 2.10, 
we have this, this statement, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. You have this kind of initial idea that Christ is the son, and then you have this reference to, to Christ as the founder of their salvation being made perfect through suffering. The only other place in which Christ is referred to as the founder of salvation is over in 12, chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then the author tells his audience to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And, and then what he's going to do is he's going to start talking about how, uh, how the word of exhortation addresses you as sons in 12.5. So the many sons being brought, brought to glory in 2.12 is fleshed out by this, or, or perhaps applied by this instruction on sonship and how we respond to difficulties in chapter 12. So here's your application from the sermon from Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So in one way, we respond to the message that, that the eternal Christ has come as man for our salvation by recognizing we are sons being led to glory, and the Father is disciplining us in this sonship. And then just to try to, to, again, press in the author's own application to us, let me draw your attention to Hebrews 12, 12, where the author adds his response to these realities. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever had an injury, and then you've had a, a physical therapist perhaps give you some exercises that strengthen the muscle around perhaps the, the elbow that's got tennis elbow or, or that stretch out muscles that are causing an impingement, something like this. I've experienced this, and you do these exercises, and the pain goes away. And whereas formerly you reach... I had this, this, this tennis elbow in my, in my elbow from painting, and I would reach into the washing machine to get laundry, and I could not pull the laundry out with my hand because my hand had been weakened. I do the exercises. I strengthen the elbow. I reach in, and I grab the laundry, and I put it in the dryer. No problem. No pain. We need to, the author is saying, apply this to your spiritual life. Look at your spiritual life. Where are you weak? Where are you tempted? What muscles around what joints need to be strengthened? And when he says, lift your drooping hands, I think he's saying, what are you being lazy for? Strengthen your weak knees. And then when he says, make straight paths for your feet, it's like he's saying, look, if you know that this same situation tempts you to respond in a wrong way every time, make straight paths for your feet. Figure out how to deal with that situation better. Or perhaps figure out how not to be exposed to what tempts you. Cut that out of your life. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight fasts for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. You don't keep aggravating that same injury, but rather healed. You get stronger through the fatherly discipline. 
that is intended to bring about, as verse 11 speaks, a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. I want to close with some of these glorious realities about the Lord Jesus. And again, this, this comes from um, several early church fathers. So Ignatius of Antioch, reveling in these, these seeming paradoxes or seeming impossibilities about the Lord Jesus. He says, there is only one physician who is both flesh, man, and spirit, God, born and unborn, God in man, true life in death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering and then beyond it, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Similarly, Melito of Sardis wrote, He who hung the earth is hanging he who fixed the heavens has been fixed. He who fastened the universe has been fastened to a tree. God has been murdered. I mean, it's shocking for him to speak this way. Gregory of Nazianzus, in a sermon on Christ's birth, said, I shall cry out the meaning of this day. The fleshless one is made flesh. The word becomes material. The invisible is seen. The intangible is touched. The timeless has a beginning. The Son of God becomes Son of Man. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same also for all the ages. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we contemplate the way that we have willfully transgressed against you. We confess, Lord, that we thought little of your holiness and we, we failed to consider what it would cost. Lord, it, it never occurred to us that it would require the death of the Son of God. Lord, we pray that you would bring home to our hearts who the Lord Jesus is and cause us to worship in response to this marvelous impossibility that you have accomplished in making it so that the word became flesh. And Lord, we pray that you would not only cause us to worship, but also cause us to live lives of worship, cause us to respond to your mercies by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. And Lord, as we do this, we ask that you would give us insight into how we can lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. Lord, do all this for the glory of your great name. Compel us to it by the wonder of who Christ is, by the gracious revelation of yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. We pray for your help. We pray that you would summon forth from us thoughts that are worthy of you 
and lives that, that are fitting, lives that are worthy of the gospel that has come to us. We ask all these things, Lord, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen.